This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. Here we go. Money conversations in early stages of relationships are difficult. They compromise all the time. We face harder choices. We got the house. No, my mother said, when you get older, I wish you'd hurry and get older so that you would settle down and marry a rich man. And I said, Mom, I am a rich man. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Meet, Pay, Love, a podcast where we all talk all about money and relationships. It's been a while since we've talked to you and I hope you're doing fine. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. First of all, we'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land in which we are recording and listening to this podcast on today. We respect their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello, Carmel. How are you? I'm well, thanks, and I'm really excited to be back, and I'm excited about this topic that we're discussing today, which is buying a house with your partner. It's a topic that I'm quite passionate about, being a property lawyer and also owning a house with my partner. Yeah, I hope that you get a lot out of it today. Well, the thing is, this topic is quite personal to you because you have gone through this process. I haven't quite yet, and I'm not sure, well, like, I haven't been talking to my partner about it at all, so pretty far away. But I would like to preface this conversation with the fact that a lot of the stuff we talk about in this episode actually relates to individuals and couples together. The law doesn't really change that much. Um, If you're a couple or an individual, you can do it by yourself or with someone else. Yeah. And also things like lending, um, where to buy, what to buy, when to buy. We won't really be going into that, but it really doesn't matter if you're buying as a single or as a couple. One of the interesting things that always pops up when you talk about buying a house with a partner is when you have unequal deposit saved or you have unequal earning capacity or they call it serviceability. So you might not be able to service a loan as much if you're a lower income earner. So it is always a bit tricky, I guess, when you're buying with someone else, because it's very rare that a couple will be earning exactly the same amount and have the exact same amount saved. Yeah. And on that, if you have the capacity to buy by yourself, absolutely 100% go ahead. But buying with another person does allow for a higher lending. So you could probably get lent a little bit more from the banks and does put the burden of paying off a home loan on two people. It's not just you by yourself. Yeah, exactly. And like, although it's obvious, it's good to be said that, for example, I was going to be buying a house on my own. It was buying a house was something that I was always really wanting to do. It was something that I wanted to do first before investing too much money in shares. And obviously, you know, it's a personal thing and there's not one size that fits all. But for me, I wanted to buy. So I was looking at apartments and then I met my partner, Pete, and I put my buying plans on hold for a while. And then when we were quite serious together, we decided to buy together. And it meant that all of a sudden, instead of buying an apartment in the area that I wanted to live, I could now buy a house with Pete in the area that I wanted to live. So it worked out for me in that sense. Uh, The interesting thing was for us was I had a lot more money saved. I had lived at home and I just was a good saver, whereas Pete had lived out of home and wasn't as good a saver, but he did earn a lot more than me. So for us, it kind of balanced out um, in a good way that it felt quite equal, even though we're coming at it, you know, from different positions. Well, yeah, you're not alone in that because 30% of millennials currently own their own home. And that is according to Ray in New South Wales. So you are in good company. <laughs> Myself, 
personally, I've kind of given up on my dream. Not given up. I'm definitely putting it on hold for my like to buy a house. I did want to buy a house and I have been looking. But right now my deposit is just me. I haven't, as I said, I haven't discussed this with Ollie at all. It's not something that I... I'm avoiding discussing with him. I just think we have other things that we want to achieve before we kind of buy a house together. But I'm not alone in that. So there is that sort of split between mentalities. But there are a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to buying a property, not just finding someone else to buy it with or going alone, but there's stuff like the house deposit. So according to savings.com.au, 40% of millennials see saving for a house deposit as the highest barrier of entry when it comes to buying a house. 45% say the secondary is probably getting a loan. And then 44% say stamp duty is another issue with buying a house. Stamp duty is a strange one that I never actually realized what it was, but it does put an extra cost on top of the overall cost of the house. All right. As always, we're going to head into an interview with everyday people. And today we're hearing from Kasani. She's going to talk to us about her experience, about how hard it is to buy a house and to find the route of the right house and um, getting out bid, which I think is happening. When I was buying, it took us about 12 months to find the right place and um, we were seeing things go 100000 200000 over the listed price and it just takes that time sometimes to see how it all works, adjust your expectations. Um, you have to make compromises and you're not going to compromise straight away without doing the research and looking about what's actually in the market and within your range. And then you might want to think, okay, is land more important to me or do I want something more modern that I'm not going to have to do up? And I could talk about this for ages, but anyway. (laughs) Well, why don't we let Kasani talk about it for for a little bit? So over to you, Kasani. Um, I'm Kasani. I'm 23. My partner and I live together and we go between our parents' houses. I'm a massage therapist, work part-time. For the last probably 18 months, my partner and I have been saving to buy a house and for the last six months we've been actively looking, which is increasingly becoming a little bit harder. When you start looking for a house, people tell you like, oh, you walk in and you'll just know it's the house, you know, you'll get that feeling. And we were going through a few different houses and we were like, we're not getting that feeling and we've put about three or four different offers down on a house now. Um, we're finding that we just continuously keep getting outbidded um, to the point where like, well, maybe we'll increase our price range, but we don't really want to do that for our first house. We're pretty comfortable with just getting something that's kind of in a lower price bracket, but still a really nice house because we're pretty lucky in Mandra. Um, there's some really nice houses at an affordable price. So we don't have to go too far out of our budget, but now the prices are getting a little bit higher it's starting to get increasingly difficult we've been together for two and a half years now I think how we got onto the discussion of wanting to save for a house was April 2019 we got back from Bali and we booked our next holiday and I saved up for that did all the travel plans and everything and then I was like what else am I going to do with my money? Um, Michael had just got a full-time job after being unemployed for a couple of months. Um, so we kind of had a bit of excess money and we were spending it here and there. And I just kind of read The Barefoot Investor and started listening to different podcasts and wanted to put my money towards something a bit more meaningful. And we were kind of getting sick of our parents. I'll say really quietly in case they're listening. <laughs> and we were like, well, why don't we, you know, look at 
buying a house for ourselves and, you know, getting out of our parents' house. And um, I emailed a mortgage broker who's a family friend and he was like, we'll get to this number and then we'll talk. So he gave us a savings goal and then he was like, when you're ready, just let me know and we'll take it from there and kind of get your pre-approval and stuff done. We probably have about an annual 20K difference in our earning. So I earn less and he earns on the more side although I'm probably the better saver. Yeah, I just don't think that I would have been able to purchase a property without Michael's help, Um, even though we've got the same kind of savings amount currently. I probably wouldn't have bought a property um, at least within the next three to five years' time on my own um, because it's with my income it probably would have been, would not have been feasible to do, yeah. Thanks, Kasani. And now we're going to hear from other everyday people who have called in to share their story about buying a house with their partner. Hi, my name's Adam and I have a bit of a history having bought and sold property uh, with my now wife. My boyfriend and I have been together for six years. We're both turning 27 this year. I'm a dentist and he's an accountant. Um, I earn quite a bit more than he does. We both earn about the same, though my wife's actually, she's the smarter more professional one i just have i just work shift work so when we decided to buy a house we'd been together for about four and a half years and um when i was moving back we decided it's just time to live together and we both had quite a bit of money saved up so we thought buying was the right choice for us then um we've been together for about four years and married for just over one of those um i'm 31 and working in education whereas my wife is 37 and works more in the corporate space we bought our first family home in 2009 and then we bought our what we now call our forever home in 2017. Um, we bought it right before COVID. My wife probably wants something a little bit newer and ready to move into straight away, whereas I'm more excited about the opportunity to renovate and capitalise on a bit of um, DIY work, which I'm really um, passionate about. I don't know what I'd do differently. I probably wouldn't rush to sell, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. The hardest thing about trying to buy a house with my partner is not rushing and trying not to be affected by the people that were there at the home opens because even at the home opens, there'd be like 20 different couples and some houses would go on to offer on the same weekend. They had their first home open and so it was really hard. What we did though is we came up with a list of things that the house must have and must not have and then sticking to that as a bit of an anchor um, was really helpful. To not get caught up into that FOMO vibe and not to just rush into buying a house just for the sake of buying a house because I have this money sitting there. Thanks so much. It's great to hear from people from our community to hear, you know, what's actually going on out there. And so now we're going to move more into lending and because I think affordability is one of the biggest issues when buying a home. Once you get past the, do I want to buy a house with my partner? How much money are we going to put in? You know, I think the next issue is how much can we afford? And so according to CoreLogic, it takes an average of 8.7 years to save enough for a 20% deposit, which is a really long time. And I think as the mortgage broker that we're going to speak to will tell us, a lot of people are getting help from their parents. That's kind of one of the things that's put me off is the deposit. It's so hard to try and save that amount of money, especially when you're new to the workforce as a millennial, which actually, let me just be honest, I'm technically a Gen Z. (laughs) We've done this whole podcast and I just found out that I'm technically a Gen Z, not a millennial, but it applies to Gen Zs as well. I'm just on the cusp. But I've just entered the job world and I have been struggling to save any sort of money, especially not 20% of a deposit for an apartment or a house. 
But the thing is as well, worryingly, this is from CoreLogic as well, many Australians, about 44% are unaware that banks can actually lend to you without a 20% deposit. So you don't need all of the money, but it would be good to have some. Yeah. And I guess it just comes back to individual circumstances. We didn't quite have 20% deposit, but because of our professions, we had LMI waived. I think banks are being more stricter on that um, in the current climate, but it pays to get professional advice in this area, obviously, to figure out what what you actually need um, in terms of a deposit to buy what you want to buy. So you said LMI. What what does that stand for? Not an expert on this, but just from going through it myself, the purpose of having twenty percent deposit is if the the market dips or crashes twenty percent, then the banks are still going to be able to sell your home and recoup all of the amount that's loaned to you. So they're not going to be in a position where they're losing money. So that's why you need that 20% buffer or equity in the house. The LMI insurance is for if you don't have that 20% deposit, then it insures so that the banks can recoup any loss they might have if, if you default on your loan and they have to sell the house. But some banks think that your profession is secure so doctors lawyers um i don't know it depends on the bank physios (laughs) not not digital marketing professionals (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe there's a bank out there i don't know (laughs) um again this is not my area of expertise lending but and we'll talk to a mortgage broker who does um have this as their expertise but what i'm saying is you can get it waived um i mean sometimes you might want to just pay it because it's you know the market might be going up um, faster than the amount that you can save. Um, and so you're better off just paying LMI. It really just depends on your circumstances, um, your risk tolerance, um, all those kind of things. Well, as you keep saying, you are not an expert. So why don't we talk to someone who is? First of all, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from this message from our sponsors. And then we're coming back with our chat with a mortgage broker. And now we're going to hear from John Fisher. John is a director at Pitcher Partners and he heads up the finance broking division in Pitcher Partners, Sydney. He deals with advising people on loans for houses every single day. I got a lot out of this interview and I hope that you do too. So yeah, my name's John Fisher. I run a um, mortgage broking business in Sydney. I'm based in Woolloomooloo, just outside the CBD. And we secure home loans for a lot of personal clients and then and secure business loans for some of our business clients as well. So I guess we're the ones that are preparing clients for their first home purchase or their second or third purchase. And we're doing a lot of the negotiations and the the legwork with the banks. But we like to we like to do a lot of analysis up front and make sure people are prepared for that huge journey they go down when buying a property, particularly first home buyers. When do you go directly to the bank and when do you go to like a broker to secure your loan? You are asking a broker. Um, so I'm probably going to tell you, I'm going to be a bit biased and tell you to go to a broker. Um, I can give <laughs> pros and cons of both just to be, um, to sit on the fence, but some people go direct to a bank, but there are they're pretty much just the major banks where you can go direct. It's it's any bank that's got a branch, a physical branch, where you can actually go into a store and speak to a banker. Um, so that that's generally, you know, CBA, ANZ, Westpac and NAB, the major banks and some of the other banks. But 
you know, where myself, I'm accredited with about 40 lenders and there's obviously not 40 lenders or banks that have branches. So they rely on brokers to kind of feed them business and that in turn creates a bit more competition. So if, if you can imagine if you just had people that could go into the branches with the big four, all these other lenders aren't going to be really active or dominant or have any market share to put pressure on those major banks to reduce rates or to improve their products. So, but to your question specifically, you can go direct to a bank, but you can also go to a broker where generally you're not paying for their service because they're going to get paid via a commission from the bank. And you can have a chat to them and they they can kind of look at your situation independently weigh up you know your assets your liabilities your income your actual specific situation because everyone's situation is different and not every bank or bank product is perfect for that individual's or that couple's situation having the ability to actually really uncover someone's needs and their situations and their circumstances and what they really want to get out of it and then you know approaching the right bank with the right product for their needs. So I think that's where the broker and the bank, the difference is. A broker, you're not paying for their service. They can sit down with you and actually, you know, really recommend a product that they're independent of. Yeah. So it's a more personalized lending experience. If I put my little marketing hat on and I summarize it in like one word, one sentence. Um, that's a good, that's a good way to describe it. Having options. So what trends are you seeing in the market at the moment? What are you seeing with your clients in terms of how many percentage-wise do you think would be buying with their partner or with another person, perhaps their parents, versus people that are buying just as single people? The, the majority that we would be seeing at the moment, we would probably be doing half our loans at the moment would be first-time buyers, and I think that's reflective across the data around Australia. Um, but for us specifically, what we, we can only really comment on what we see, seen a lot of couples, first home buyers, couples, joint borrowing and joint ownership. A lot of people, a lot of trends uh, at the moment or a big trend at the moment, sorry, is people struggling to actually save the deposit required. So given rates are at historical low levels and people's incomes are, are maintained and hopefully going to go up with wage growth, People can afford the amount of debt they need, but a lot of people don't have the cash required to contribute as a deposit and pay stamp duty. So I'll talk in New South Wales, but if you buy a property for a million bucks, generally you're going to need around 245000 cash to complete that purchase. Now, there are ways to complete it with less cash, but there are going to be more costs, but I'll just generally speak with what the banks are comfortable with. Buy a property for a million dollars, bank's happy to lend 80%. So that means you're contributing 20, which is 200. And then you're going to have around 45,000 in costs, which are going to be stamp duty and conveyancing costs and a few other bits and pieces. So that can be a big equation for people trying to get into the market, um, saving that amount of cash. And people, you know, people may have shares, people may have Bitcoin. They may say, well, I don't really want to liquidate those assets to contribute to this property. Um, so there is a big trend in parents gifting millennials cash or early inheritance to contribute to their first property purchase um, and then solving that equation of coming up with that, you know, circa 250000 for the million-dollar purchase. Um, so that's a huge trend. A key point to that is the bank will often ask the parents to sign a letter confirming that that 
gift is non-repayable. So that's something that people should be aware of. Obviously, if you know, you've got an uncle or an auntie that lends you $200,000 and says pay it up in 12 months, that's not an ideal situation if you're going to borrow a heap of money from the bank and then you've got a, a nasty uncle after you for a couple hundred grand. So if it's, if, it needs, if it's got terms on that gift and it's repayable, that needs to be disclosed to the bank and it's probably going to ruin your chances of getting a loan because the bank has to incorporate all your liabilities and obligations in that equation when they're working out if they're comfortable to lend you that money. And that's going to be HEX, that's going to be your car loan, that's going to be credit card. It's your credit card limit, not your balance. You might have a David Jones card, you might have a Maya card, you might have a, a Virgin card and you don't actually use them, but they're going to factor on the limit. Um, but yeah, big trend, people needing gifts from their parents to get their first property. People leveraging off a, a, a family member's property as a guarantee. Yeah, I guess property prices are going through the roof no matter where you look, regional cities um, across Australia and in Sydney, obviously. And, and then there's that element of FOMO that's come through and that was kind of coming through late last year. Um, people kind of spending, you know, way above what they were initially comfortable with when we first chatted. And then we go down this path of a couple months of, you know, getting a pre-approval and suddenly going, hi, John, I know we were pre-approved for a million-dollar purchase, but I think we're going to have to stretch to 1.3. And this is how we've done it. Um, and that's generally, you know, one of the parents providing a property as collateral. I, I would say about two out of three applications at the moment um, for first-time buyers in particular are involving some form of support to um, secure their property. They can afford the debt because obviously debt's at the lowest it's ever been. So people have really got to be careful that it's generally a 30-year home loan. Rates aren't going to be as low as they are now. So we need to make sure people are factoring in buffers. There's, it's a bit stressful for people at the moment, and particularly if you go to an open home and there's 30 people um, and there's a people that sort of, you know, look a bit older than you and, you know, you, you might get gazumped at the auction or whatever. But um, So you're saying that there's a lot of demand for property are we ever going to see that crash that everyone thought was going to happen with COVID is that ever going to happen or are the rates so low that everyone's like now I can actually buy a house yeah it's a good question I think when when COVID hit so for me as a small business owner that was scary um, you know you want to be able to keep your staff employed and um, it was yeah, it was a really scary time, and I think, and then everyone, you know, we're all fixated with the news and the stats around COVID and the infection rates. And someone in my apartment building, Woolamaloo, got it early days, um, and I thought, oh god, this is actually going to really hit home. Um, and then, you know, the banks released all that repayment pause um, security blanket for people, and they, they you know, you could re um, pause the repayments on your home loan for six months. And, and you only had to catch up over the remaining term, which is, you know, if you got a loan last year for 30 years and then you just pause your repayments for six months, you've just got to make up six months repayments in 29 years. So it wasn't actually going to affect many people. So a lot of people jumped on that, which was great. The government reaction was swift. It was quick. It was pretty, it was pretty good in the, in the time that they actually executed on it. But then we all thought that a lot of those people that were on repayment pauses, and this came from a lot of the some senior bankers, they were really worried a lot of people would default. Um, but then as the government kind of wound back JobKeeper, 
I think some of the stats ended up being there are there were only three hundred thousand people on it towards the very end um, from those huge numbers early on, early on. So definitely low rates are helping. Um, how low the rates can stay for how long um, is the question. Um, it seems like everyone's spending money. Um, people are buying expensive properties. Um, people are you know they, they're not going on holidays, but as soon as they will, I'm sure there's going to be floodgates out the door but it seems like people are spending a lot of money but inflation's still at an okay level so it just depends on i guess interest rates are the big thing it seems like there's got to be some key key catalyst for that um, property crash to happen moving back to your trends and and couples in particular so i'm mid twenties and a lot of my friends are at the stage of buying the first home and that most of my friends are looking to buy with their partners. One of the common questions that comes up, I guess, over, over a coffee is my partner has a lot more in savings or a lot less in savings than me. We have unequal different deposit amounts. I don't know how to approach this. And I, I assume that you would come across that issue all the time. I know your your job is not to be a financial advisor, but how do you see that people attack that problem? Yeah, that's a it's a it's a common thing that comes up, and it's something that you know I've dealt with firsthand and friends and family and and the like. Um, it's not something that I don't sit in a meeting or go out to a coffee shop and meet a couple, and they obviously they don't probably voice that, but because it could be a bit awkward. Um, so. Carmel, I'm not sure if that's one of your friends in the relationship saying that to you, saying, how do we approach this? Because it's, it sometimes can be awkward in a relationship when someone's got more money or less money or someone's got more income to service the debt or less. It's still got to be a partnership. You've got to go in it together. But I don't generally have people come to me saying, what do we do here? Because it can be awkward. But I think something that is, and it might answer the question, it's a bit more transparent, is when you know, one of the, someone in the relationship's parents is the one contributing a lot of the deposit with the gift. Um, that's where you can sometimes get some legal framework in terms of if there was any ever a split or if you ever sold the asset or whatever, that's where you can kind of change the ownership structure on the property to make sure that, you know, all parties are treated equally if there was ever an exit. Because you don't have to just buy the property 50-50. You know, the common way is joint tenants. So, you know, 50-50, if God forbid something happens to one of the people in the relationship, it'll just, under joint tenants, it'll just go to the other person. The other option is tenants in common, which will go to the will of the person that's passed away. So if someone's putting in 500 grand to a, a big purchase and the other person isn't, they potentially may want to change the ownership of the property. Um, so that's something they can do uh, and get advice with their property solicitor and their accountant around that. Also, if someone's contributing more, you could get some sort of external legal agreement done. But it, it is something that I think people think about a lot um, and they need to obviously talk about it and be transparent about it because you don't want to you know, feel jaded by that and, and creates issues down the track. Um, but often what I see a, a common scenario is someone's got the cash savings, but then the other person's probably got more income to, you know, afford a bigger loan as a couple. So however way you carve that out, if, if, if someone who's contributing more upfront 
wants to have more of an equity ownership in the property. Or you might just say, look, it all evens out. I'm contributing more upfront, but this person's going to be paying in the next 15 years probably more of the repayments. So let's just go in together as 50-50 ownership. But I think being transparent and talking through that is key. Uh, but often people probably aren't presenting that to me. They're probably working that out together as a couple. And that's a key consideration as well with investment properties and, and things like that from a tax perspective. So, you know, if there's if there's listeners there that have their owner-occupied property and they're thinking of buying an investment property, that's where you want to get advice. How do we own that investment property? Do we own it 50-50 or do we put it in the name of the person earning more income because it's going to be tax-effective strategy and that's where you get your accountant involved. But I think a key takeout is making sure you get advice before you do any big purchase because obviously these are the biggest purchases and, and the biggest loan applications we're ever going to do in our lives. So getting the right people in your corner is, is key. So John, when you say you can have a different percentage split of ownership, so say let's say someone was 20% owner and that goes on the title as, you know, 20 and then there's the other party that has 80 but when it comes to the loan, would you ever see it where the one party that owns 20% would have a loan for only 20% of the value of that property? Or is it more common that you'd still have a joint loan? Yeah, it's more common that you'd still have a joint loan because then they can, look, you can structure it that way where if you've got a 20% of the property, you've got then a percentage of that 20% as the loan because you, you, you're generally not going to have a 100% loan against 100% of the value. So yeah, if you own 20%, then maybe you would get a loan for say 16% or whatever of that 20%, but it gets a little bit complicated with that structure. But I guess the short answer is yes, you can do that, but it's probably not as common. And I wonder if that's the case with parents as well, when you have parents that, and earlier you mentioned um, uh, how banks would prefer or they might require you to sign a letter if you're um, receiving a gift from your parents and me listening in the background as a property lawyer pro- put my property lawyer hat on and thought um, as you rightfully said definitely get advice because there's big different legal implications if something's to be treated as a gift or if it's to be treated as a loan and we often draw up loan agreements from parents but Going back to the split loan thing, if parents are giving you a uh, maybe maybe it's neither a gift nor a loan, but they're purchasing the property with you, so they might have a percentage split. I wonder if it would be common then for them to also have a, their own separate loan. That's right. Yeah, no, definitely. We've done that before. Um, so that's that probably the way you can get support from your family is probably a good way to start this. And then I'll go into that direct. But yeah, the the gifts cash gifts, but then joint borrowing with the family member can be a way to A, help you borrow the amount of money you want from a serviceability point of view. So whenever you go to a bank, there are the two key things or the three things. One thing is character. So obviously not being a dirtbag and being able to afford the loan and having a good history, but having enough security. So having enough value in the asset that you're pledging to the bank or you're buying relative to the debt. So that's a big component and then also your ability to service that loan and that's where you know having someone else on the loan may help either your partner or or a parent the most common one is the gift the cash gift the second most common one is a family security guarantee um, so it's not as common for the 
parents to be on the loan or to joint own the property with the parent. So, you know, if it's myself as a single person and I need, I, I can't borrow what I need to, so I buy the property with my mum, it's probably not the best strategy long-term for me. Um, but maybe myself borrowing by myself, buying a property by myself, but then using my mum's property as security to help me buy that property in my name. That's a, that's a more common uh, loan structure that we find. So that's called a family security guarantee. So say in the example I used before of buying a million dollar property and needing to 244K in cash, um, say if, you know, I had a couple hundred grand in shares, they were going to go really well in a year's time. I really didn't want to sell them, but my income was good. And so I wanted to buy a million dollar property it's going to cost me around a million and fifty with stamp duty and some conveyancing costs, which you've got to think about. But I don't want to actually contribute anything. I might contribute fifty grand, let's say. So the bank's only the bank's going to really want me to contribute two hundred and forty-five grand or two hundred and fifty grand, but I'm only contributing fifty grand. So I've got an issue with my loan-to-value ratio or my LVR. So if that was a standalone deal, just that property involved be technically borrowing too much money relative to the value of that property but my income's fine so i could say to the bank hey i can i can pay this off in 10 years i say yeah that's good but if anything were to happen to that income we would then have an asset that's only worth a little bit more than the debt and what happens if the property market goes down suddenly the bank's going to be exposed so that's sort of the two two factors one's you know your borrowing power from your income but another is how much security you've got or what the LVR is, um, loan to value ratio. So that's where in my example, where I use, I introduced my mom. Um, that's where I, you could use a parent to provide another property as security. So again, the example, I buy a million dollar property. It costs me a million and 50, but I want to borrow a million dollars. So I want to borrow the whole amount. That by itself doesn't work with the bank because they don't have enough headroom in case the property went down or if in case I defaulted and they had to sell it, they're not going to get their money back. So they always need a buffer and that buffer can come in the form of a family guarantee. Getting someone's parents' family home tied into your now first home purchase is maybe not ideal, but say if someone's got a $2 million home with no debt, there's not as much risk there. So that's where the parent, the owner of that property can guarantee your debt and they guarantee your mortgage. So you're still the sole borrower. You log into your online banking, the loans in your name, you've got full accountability and responsibility of that loan, which is important for a lot of people, but you've been able to borrow what you want. You've been, in the example I gave, you've been able to retain those other investments rather than liquidating them because you're confident and afford that amount of debt. And then you've utilized the equity in your parents' home, which has been used as a as a guarantee. And the bank takes the bank has to take a mortgage over your parents' home. But ideally they're only going to take a mortgage over your parents' home for a short period of time. And I'll explain why. So in the easy million dollar example, the bank's happy to lend 80% of that as a general rule of thumb. They can sometimes go higher than that, but 80% is eight hundred thousand dollars. If we're borrowing a million dollars and the bank's happy to lend against my new home, 800,000, it means that we're 200 grand out. So we need to go to the bank and say, hey, 
yes, you're only happy to lend 80% of my million dollar property, which is 800,000, but I'm coming to you with good income and I want to borrow a million dollars. You then get a $200,000. So that's the difference, $200,000 family guarantee. So in the example I gave, my mum would sign a guarantee for $200,000 supported by her home. As soon as my property went up in value or and combined with me repaying the debt, say in a few years' time, the property was worth $1.2 and I'd paid down $200,000. And suddenly my debt relative to my asset value can stand on its own two feet with the bank. I can then release my mum's guarantee and they can discharge her mortgage. You, you want to be in a position where your family's only guaranteeing a small amount for a short period of time because they may be close to retirement or they just may not, they, they've probably you know, worked their ass off and they don't want to have any ties to the bank or mortgages over their property. Thanks so much, John. I guess what we said at the start here is although we talk about money and all things money and relationships and finance, buying a house is one of those things that really does equally apply to individuals and couples. The only thing that I can really think of that is unique to couples is if you earn different amounts or if you have a different amount saved, but we're kind of discussing on the basis that you've decided as a couple to go ahead and purchase a house together anyway. I would just say that if you are going to have parents contributing, really think carefully about what it means to receive a gift or a loan and think about the documentation that you can get if you are getting a loan and um, seek advice from a property lawyer or someone about what those two things mean because it can have big impacts down the track. John did say a huge trend that he's seeing is that parents are gifting millennials cash to buy their first home. And this is also a trend with millennials. So according to a poll conducted by Seven News, about one in four or 23% of those who they surveyed got help from their parents for a deposit or loan repayments, while 12% reportedly having assistance with the full purchase price of the house that they've bought. So that is a huge number of people going to their parents. If you're lucky enough and you, you have that sort of privilege that your parents are in the position to help you out with your loan, going to them to get that help. And was that something you ever considered, Carmel, going to your parents, our parents? Well, of course I asked them, but of course they said no. (laughs) Of course, like when you're faced with, uh, you know, you go through 12 months of looking and you go through um, brokers or banks and you get given a number and you keep getting, you keep missing out by uh, $100,000 or $50,000. It's just so much money and you know, it just, for us, we were, I think we were about 18% deposit and we were like, oh, do we need 20%? I just, mom, dad, can you give me a bit more money? And they were just like, no, this is something that you need to do on your own. Like, I'm grateful for that now because we we have done it on our own and we're comfortable with our repayments. I think my parents' position or our parents' position was very much like, well, if the bank won't loan you that amount without help from us, then can you afford that amount? Probably not. But if you are lucky enough to have your parents' like put in and they're happy to do that then like you know more power to you I guess Mm. well that's the thing so in my position because I couldn't have bought on my own and I haven't been discussing that with my partner I did have that conversation with my uh, our parents I keep saying my but I forget we're sisters so we have the same parents I kept having that conversation with our parents being like if I were to get them to contribute they would own that part of the property. It wouldn't be a gift. It would be a co-investment 
with my parents. And so I actually wouldn't own the house that I'm in. I'd only partially own it, which I guess is a good step no, no matter what. Like right now I'm renting and to be brutally honest, it's just dead money. I mean, it's it's giving me a roof over my head, but I'm not putting it to anything. I don't know about that dead money argument because this is the thing, like you need to live somewhere and it's not, I don't, I just don't really think that rent money is dead money because for example, if I were renting, my rental might be, if I was in a share house, might be 200, $250 a week. And then if I, my mortgage payments, like $500 a week, then I could take that $300, 250 extra and put that in the stock market and that might give me better returns. So I just think it's not necessarily dead money because like interest repayments are kind of dead money. So there's a difference between interest and principal, obviously. The principal is the amount that you paid for the house and that's the amount of your loan. Interest accumulates on top of that. People might argue that interest is dead money. So I don't know. I just don't know about that argument. Well, I think for me, what it feels like is although I am paying to live somewhere, the apartment I'm in is shit. Like we've just had, we, we just found out that we've got a box outside our window that admits CO2 gases, like carbon monoxide gases into our kitchen window that no one told us about. And we've just got all this stuff that's wrong with it that's like not really living conditions. And I'm still paying a lot of money to be here where I could be paying off a loan for a house that I live in and I own and I can look after. Like there's that sort of difference of like, although I'm renting and I've got a roof over my head, there are still things wrong with it that are beyond my control. And so it is more of that control of money. But then again, it, it's a very privileged standpoint to be from, having the ability to rent and like <laughs> complain about it. Yeah, but I think like a lot of people would agree that housing affordability is really high and that's why, uh, particularly where we live in inner city Melbourne, but that's why I was thinking it's probably, for me, if I buy my house and over time my repayments will go down as I slowly pay the house off, on the other side of the spectrum – the rental market is going to increase just with inflation and um, rent prices will go up. So although at the moment my mortgage repayments are more than rent, it might eventually be the opposite where, you know, I've paid off my house, I'm living for free, um, which is a long-term game and not everyone wants to live in the one place for a long time. So it just depends. But for me, I'm all about having your own principal place of residence as yours. Mm, yeah, well, I would tend to agree. I mean, I don't think that's another reason that's put me off buying is that Ollie and I um, are not planning to live in Melbourne for the rest of our lives, nor for the next 10 years. Hopefully, if COVID sort of subsides, we can we can move somewhere else um, because obviously his family, half his family is in Thailand and we'd love to go see them and live there for a little bit. And so I don't want to have to pay off all these repayments and then go have to rent somewhere else in a different country. It doesn't really appeal to me. Mum always said, like, you can't really go wrong buying your own place if you intend to live there for a while because you've got to live somewhere. And that's where we're going to leave this episode. You've got to live somewhere. That's the moral of the story. Yeah. You've got to live somewhere. You've got to live somewhere. Um, whether it be in the back of a van driving all around Australia or if it's in an apartment or if it's in a house or wherever you want to live with your friends in a share house. Um, But if you are a couple looking to buy, I hope this was informative. Um, And we look forward to seeing you next time where we're going to talk all things weddings. Weddings.
This uh, next topic is very interesting. It's actually a lot of fun uh, because <laughs> I really want to plan a wedding. I don't know if I want to get married, but I would love to plan one eventually. <laughs> Are you thinking about a career change? I might. Honestly, it seems really fun. <laughs> <laughs> It's either that or interior design. I'm having an existential crisis. <laughs> That's what you missed in the break, guys. I'm going crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to us. And if you want more, um, please subscribe to Meet Pay Love. And you can check out our Instagram account, which is Meet Pay Love. Or you can email us, mpl at equitymates.com. We love to hear from you. We love having you on the show. And we really appreciate your, all your support. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Meet Pay Love is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional financial, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Meet Pay Love are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Meet Pay Love acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.